namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sangham namasami give some readings from the anapanasati sutta which is the discourse, Buddha's discourse on mindfulness of breathing in the, in the 118th discourse of the Majjhima Nikaya and it helps to give us a recognition of the, the context uh, of the teaching and as I was intimating last night the, the experience of a, of a context is very valuable it's it's uh, sometimes things that we, we don't take fully into account we, we report on particular incidents or facts or statements and we don't remember or we don't really fully recognize where they, you know the situation they occurred in and it's often the context that gives rise to the to the emotion or the, the volition or the um, the receptivity of the mind um, so for example we come to to, to you come to a retreat center Amrawaddi and there's perhaps a particular resonance about that. It represents something that, that immediately uplifts a little more, say, than sitting in your kitchen does. Um, and these are things that are not to be discounted. Not that one shouldn't sit in one's kitchen, but um, that you know we, we realize that some things are naturally a little more inspiring or a little more clarifying or a little more conducive than others. And it's awareness of context. Um, so... This teaching on Anapanasati occurs in the context of the life of the Buddha. Um, so this becomes very meaningful. The more one's faith, the more one's uh, love, the more one's appreciation rests in the presence of the Buddha. Uh, then, of course, this, this strengthens the kind of energy and uplift you can get from the, the, the suttas themselves. Um, this is, say, part of the graduated maturation of the process. So, in, like for example, in my own life, then, you know, when I came first of all to a Buddhist monastery, it was just the place to be, and the Buddha was one of any number of, of people, probably wiser than most, that one could come across in books and things like that. And so, okay. Um, it wasn't, you know, and then you realize this actually was a real person <coughs> living in India. Mm. And then you start to actually find you're having insights or benefits from what he said, and your heart, you know, naturally you get a certain sense of allegiance. And over years and years and years, the strong one's allegiance grows, then the more powerful just even the recollection of the Buddha becomes to actually lift one up, to strengthen one, to give one a sense of. You know, I, I, this is what I want to go for. Um, so the Anapanasati Sutta begins with a kind of a recognition of what the context is of this particular teaching. <clears throat> Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in the eastern park in the palace of Megara's mother together with many very well-known elder disciples 
the Venerable Sariputta, the Venerable Mahamogalana, the Venerable Mahakasapa, the Venerable Mahakachana, the Venerable Mahakotita, the Venerable Mahakapina, the Venerable Mahachunda, the Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Revata, the Venerable Ananda, and other very well-known elder disciples. Now, on that occasion, elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing new bhikkhus. Some elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing ten new bhikkhus. Some elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing twenty, thirty, forty new bhikkhus. And the new bhikkhus taught and instructed by the elder bhikkhus had achieved successive stages of high distinction. On that occasion, the opposed of the day of the 15th, on the full moon night of the Bhavarana ceremony, the Blessed One was seated in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus. Then surveying the silent Sangha of Bhikkhus, he addressed them thus, Bhikkhus, I am content with this progress. My mind is content with this progress. So arouse still more energy to attain the unattained, to achieve the unachieved, to realize the unrealized. I shall wait here at Savati for the Komudi full month, full moon of the fourth month. The bhikkhus of the countryside heard, the Blessed One will wait there at Savati for the Komudi full moon of the fourth month. And the bhikkhus of the countryside left in due course for Savati to see the Blessed One. And elder bhikkhus still more intensively taught and instructed new bhikkhus. On that occasion, the opposed today of the 15th, the full moon night of the Komudi full moon of the fourth month, the Blessed One was seated in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus. And surveying the silent Sangha of Bhikkhus, he addressed them thus, Bhikkhus, this assembly is free from prattle. This assembly is free from chatter. It consists purely of heartwood. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. Such an assembly as is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, an incomparable field of merit for the world. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. Such an assembly that a small gift given to it becomes great, and a great gift greater. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. Such an assembly as is rare for the world to see. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. Such an assembly as would be worth journeying many leagues with a travel bag to see. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. In the Sangha of Bhikkhus there are Bhikkhus who are arahants with taints destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of being and are completely liberated through final knowledge. In the Sangha of Bhikkhus, there are Bhikkhus who, with the destruction of the five lower fetters, are due to reappear spontaneously and there attain final Nibbana. In the Sangha of Bhikkhus, there are Bhikkhus who, with the destruction of three fetters and with the attenuation of lust, hate and delusion, are once returners. In the Sangha of Bhikkhus, there are Bhikkhus who, with the destruction of the three fetters, are stream enterers, bound for the deliverance, headed for enlightenment. In this Sangha of Bhikkhus, there are Bhikkhus who abide devoted to the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. Such Bhikkhus are there in this Sangha of Bhikkhus. 
In the Sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who have taken or by devoted to the development of the four right kinds of striving, of the four bases for spiritual power, of the five faculties, of the five powers, of the seven enlightenment factors, of the noble eightfold path. <clears throat> In the Sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who are by devoted to the development of loving kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy, of equanimity, of the meditation on unattractiveness, of the perception of impermanence. Such bhikkhus are there in this Sangha of bhikkhus. In this Sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who abide devoted to the development of mindfulness of breathing. Bhikkhus, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is a great fruit and of great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. When the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated, they fulfill the seven enlightenment factors. When the seven enlightenment factors are developed and cultivated, they fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. And how because is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated? So it is of great fruit and great benefit. Here a bhikkhu gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, sets his body erect and established mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. So we have uh, this little narrative of where, how, where the teaching was given and um, a sense of the tremendous uh, auspiciousness of the occasion. There's these great practitioners gathered <coughs> together, uh, so much so that, that, that the Savati, where the, this main teaching monastery was that the Buddha used, was becoming full up with people coming in from the countryside just so they could hear and be in this particular situation. Uh, so that the uh, the Buddha normally spent most of his most of the year wandering, and it might be quite a while before you'd ever get a chance to see him. He might come past your particular area, you know, once or twice a year. But then every <coughs> rains retreat, or well, for most of his range retreat, he spent entire three months in Savati, so that would be, the word would be out, the Buddha's at Savati for the rains again, so people would then cluster to, to see the Buddha, and so you, and then the elder, because they'd have to stay in one place for three months, this tremendous arousing of faith and conviction and energy, uh, and which would uh, have this um, feedback effect, the Buddha himself being pleased and delighted by the presence of such commitment, um, as he says, I'm, my mind is content, I'm pleased with this, and therefore because of this I'm going to stay a bit longer. So that kind of sense of, uh, of giving back to the assembly some of the energy uh, that they were, they were receiving from him, saying because of your practice, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay an extra month. So that feeling of, of um, auspiciousness, timeliness, 
and, uh, and then giving this particular teaching on mindfulness of breathing. One of the uh, fundamental factors that is required in, in practice, as we all know, is, is energy, having the energy to practice. It's partly a physical thing. A lot of it's a psychological, emotional, physiological thing. Um, uh, you know, we, we have to want to make the effort. Um, we have to both be capable and willing to make the effort. Capability is sometimes dependent upon one's physical condition, but um, willingness is the most important thing because if we're willing, then we can make the best we can of our physical condition. Uh, we can encourage ourselves to exercise or to, to refresh ourselves or to wake up or to invigorate ourselves. Without the willingness, then then everything just goes stale and slack. Um, and this willingness of heart, um, we call this, this is where faith comes in, sense of conviction, confidence, being uh, having faith, having this kind of aroused openness of mind. And then from faith, comes what's called chanda, which is desire, um, desire for practice. In the sutta, of course, the faith is there because of people's renunciation. Um, the mind, which is normally stabilized and moored to, particularly in, in India, to family, to caste, to to the land, to your occupation, you know, very, very firmly stitched into a, to a social fabric. These people are trying to rip themselves out of that. So the only thing they had to kind of actually connect to at all was the Buddha. And there he is. So this is like having your, your kind of everything that you can belong to present right in, in front of you. Um, and that you've actually fully given your heart to being, being right there. So, just as one would meet, you know, uh, you can imagine meeting a, a friend you hadn't seen for years, or a, or a parent, or a spouse that you that you feel very strongly connected to, the immediate heart uplift that arises from just even contact with that such a person. And this person is is like that, but ten times over. Um, the teacher, the enlightened one. Mm. So why uh, faith and devotional practices, I see them as, as um, I kind of hesitate to say that they are, uh, you can't do without them, but, because, uh, you know, one don't like to say things that would you know, give rise to any negative impressions, but I think if one doesn't have it, one is severely hampered by that. Um, and it's important to, to recognize the faith that one does have, <coughs> the faith in maybe meditation practice or in Theravada or in this situation or in, or in me or in whatever, and see this, this and then get that thing and then fan it so that it becomes strong um, for you because this is your kind of basic source of willingness, um, your, your will to persist through what can be... Uh, a rough and rocky and confusing experience of your karma, of your life story, of the forces of confusion 
which then cluster around even more vigorously than the Sangha of Bhikkhus did to the Buddha. So keep this in mind, we call uh, um, chanda is desire and that you must uh, learn to recognize some of these Pali words are very helpful, the English can be rather blurred, for example the word tanha, often translated desire, really means thirst and it's a kind of clinging, sucking in experience where chanda implies giving, it's the it's a full consent, a full willingness, a full giving of oneself. So this is what chanda is. Uh, it can be used to signify uh, a, a, a total degree of consent to something. You know, so it's that full willingness. I'll go with this. Is what chanda means. Hmm. Not I'm going to suck. I'm going to suck on this, but I'm going to go with it. I'm going to give myself to it. Chanda and um, sanvega, which is the word that, that gives rise to the sense of urgency. Um, an urgency is normally conveyed through two, two fundamental channels. One is the urgency conveyed by inspiration in Buddha, the Dhamma, the practice, the Sangha, um, stupas, shrines, and so on. An urgency created by the perception of the, the perils of Sangsara, death, Aging, sickness, um, insecurity—you um, know, there's enough of it around. Dukkha, you know, it's something. So this is, if you like, the goad that pushes you, and the Buddha is the thing that, that draws you. And so that the power of the mind to recollect these things is not to be um, underestimated, and it's something that one should try to deliberately enhance the power of the mind to to consider, to bear these things in mind time and time again in the morning, in the evening, in the afternoon at the moment when you've had enough at the moment when you think it's pointless at the moment when it's painful and just just remember these things and recognise with the difficulties that others have been there we've all been there others have been there the, all the arahants have walked that way too. Um, it's not that you're alone in that particular fear, pain, confusion, despond. You know. And um, so then this is something, when you experience those kinds of difficulties, then what would normally happen is there's a feeling of aloneness, or me, and then I can't do it, or why bother? And then there's a kind of collapse sagging, me, just little old me, why bother, why don't I just listen to the radio or go for a walk or give up or whatever, it becomes very localised and the mind moves towards the perception of the personality with um, its either ordinariness or its dog-earedness, you know, only old me anyway, why, you know, what do I think I'm doing, and then that, that kind of thing, so that perception arises in the mind and that perception leads to the the crushing of faith. Now, so when, but you can, <clears throat> within when you, as a meditator, the more you begin to recognize the power of mind, <coughs> then the, the, that, these perceptions are things that are the most, they are the keynotes. They set the keynotes. So instead of you thinking yourself as 
of Doris or, you know, here I am, 50-year-old housewife or whatever, then disciple of the Buddha. The Buddha is my teacher. The Buddha is my guide. You know, others have been here. Just that perception. See what that does. Mm. In the morning, in the evening, in the afternoon, and so on. What would the, the Buddha, what if he was here? What if, what if that, just bringing that perception into the mind? So here we have this particular situation why I like to use these suttas as for recollection because apart from what is actually said it's the, cre- it's the sense of creating a context a perceptual basis of practice if we can get so mesmerized in the rolling on of domestic incidents in our life that we think we are and we think we belong to and forget that there's something greater or something uh, perhaps more residual the need the, the the interest in awakening the interest in clarity the the, the, the more profound and long lasting aspirations of the mind and buddha and Sangwega are the ways to keep cutting back to that. Buddha here in the Sutta gave a kind of time limit. We can relate to that. Here we have what eight, nine days now for this. It doesn't mean that the practice ends there. It doesn't mean that there's never any meditation after that, but it means that we have, for this particular time, we have a rather special, auspicious gathering where um, every effort can be made, other things can be put aside. You've all made the efforts to put aside other concerns for this particular time. You've kind of cleared a space. You're in a place that's set up for it. You know, you're the, the, you have a prime time, and it's, but it's quite short. Similarly, when the Buddha was at Savati, said we have this time, then I'm off. And then just that extra little thing, because of the way it's been going, I'm going to stay one more month. So then that actually then further arouses you know, the sense of one month. Just you know, But not because it's a long time, because you have just one month before the Buddha will be leaving. This is a perception in the mind. And it's there to create the sense of, of lifting oneself up, making the every moment count. Time for us is a, is a very powerful perception uh, because it's, 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 we're so dosed in it, we're so steeped in time, in weekdays and in bus timetables and in getting to work on time and getting the job things on, done, done on time. It's a perception that tends to bring up a feeling of panic, pressure, flusteredness and stress. This is worldly time, because it's time that's, that's, that's um, set up to immediately plug into to your kind of your volition, your momentum to get you going faster, to get you going faster. Here, in meditation, 
perception of time is there's little time, therefore you must go even slower. <laughs> even more slowly than you were going before. You must put every effort in to slow down and, and come right into the present moment. It's that kind of thing. So even though that you have the same sort of perception of time, it's aimed at a different point. Because there's so little time, we must make every moment count and delight in it. Mm. <coughs> Very often the Buddha would actually use the time span of the breath as an indication of, of the kind of length of practice. Or even shorter, the time span of one finger snap. So he said, if you practice metta bhavana, loving kindness, for that amount of time, then you're worthy of alms. <laughs> Not long, is it? Or um, a situation when he was um, encouraging people to develop mindfulness of death, and he's saying, well, how should you develop this? And some one monk said, well, in the morning I'll think about it, in the evening I'll think about it. And he said, no, not good enough. And then one monk said, well, whenever I, you know, every time I chew my food, every, every mouthful of food I chew, I'll, I'll think about it. And the Buddha said, yeah, not good enough. And then one monk said, with each in-breath, I'll recollect it. With each out-breath, I'll recollect it. So, you know, it's like, because you, when, you, when you slow time down to very small increments, then you actually do two things. One, the smaller the increment of time, the more, the more complete it is. Um, so if you're thinking of an hour, or a day, or ten days, then actually that's a very blurred, that's only an idea. You know, but, if you're, if you're, but you can't be with that. You can't feel that. You can conceive it. You can't feel it, but you can feel a breath. So a small amount of time that's measured by a breath, so it's real time, really felt time, is the most valuable kind of time. You apply energy to, to really feel a moment. And the way that time is, actually, it's only momentariness that you can feel. You can bring up the idea of the millennium, and that's a perception, that's a thought. It may stimulate particular emotions, that's mental actions, but there's no physical sensation involved with that. With a breath, it's there, it's, it's physical, so it, it brings you into um, the actual rhythm of feeling the rhythm of contact impressions, where you actually are contacting something and you can feel it. So that kind of time span, that kind of way of, of relating oneself to an ongoing process in time, brings up into the mind the factors of pointing, fixing your attention on a particular point, which is called vitaka, and feeling it out, which is called vichara. And these, these two are the foundations of um, meditation practice, Vitaka Vichara, using the mind in this way. Being able to point and fix on an object, and then Vitaka, it's pointing and fixing on an object, and Vichara, feeling it out.
getting feedback off it, running it through your fingers, rolling it around your tongue, that kind of experience. Vitaka, taking a bite, vichara, tasting it, chewing it, rolling it around. And with a so with one inhalation and one exhalation, then you've got a, a bite you can take. You can take one inhalation that's a mouthful. Mm. And then you can chew it, feed it out. You've got enough time in one inhalation to feel what an inhalation <coughs> is about. It's uh, this is a, the breath is a very uh, fine and suitable meditation object, and it's it's something you can fix on, and it's something that lasts for long enough for you to properly feel it. You can sus- and you can sustain <coughs> energy to stay with that for one inhalation, and then you can sustain energy to stay with it for one exhalation. It's got that kind of rhythm to it. And if you do so, that meditation object then steers the mind, it reins in the mind's impatience, it spurs the mind's dullness, it steers the mind's recklessness, it, uh, it calms the mind's fearfulness, because it's steady and continual, uh, and it's got a soft and... Con- uh, Supple feeling to it. Mindfulness is the monitor or the, the, the intelligence, it's a cognitive process, it's a recognizing process that is able to, to receive these impressions, it is able to receive and recognize whether there is vitaka, whether it is fixing, whether it's there or not, whether it needs to be sharpened or not, whether it's poking too hard, whether it's kind of wavering and trembling or whether it's accurately touching the point. Mindfulness is the thing that that tells you that. You can recognize this. Mindfulness is the quality that, in combination with with vichara or investigation, is is mindfulness tells you, is the investigation slipping and sliding? So it tends towards starting off feeling out the breath, then going into feeling out feelings, and then into feeling what you feel about this and that, and then what I feel about having something to eat right now, and then reminds you of my phone when I used to make shepherd's pie. <laughs> then mindfulness says, I think the vichara needs a little bit of steering here. It's wandered off. You know, so vichara has that, that tendency. It's, um, if it's not enough, then you, your mind just gets stiff. It's numb because you're not getting enough feedback. Um, so the mind goes just kind of numb. It's rather like um, you have a you have a uh, giving a dog and a bone, and you have to point the dog to the bone and say, "There's the bone." 
you know, the bone dog, so the dog knows where to look. A bit, bit, you know, maybe some sense of smell has gone or something. So here's the bone. You point. But if you keep pointing the bone, don't let the dog get a chew of it. The dog eventually loses interest. This is when you have vitaka with no vichara. You say, breath, 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 breath. And then the mind, well, okay, okay. And then, well, so what? What's in it for me? It's, it, you don't feed it. Um, so you have to get the mind to, to touch that and then actually chew it, feed it, feed on it. Uh, feed on the, the breath energy. Um, breath energy um, feeds the mind because of the different kinds of food that we experience three of those kinds, one is physical food, the other three are purely mental mental contact, mental uh, striving and consciousness these kinds of, these are the three purely immaterial foods so we, we feed on sense impressions they delight us, they, they, they make us disgusted we take them in, we, we feed on them so a, a sense impression like the breath has the quality of um, softness, thoroughness, it's kind of like, like rubbing, touching fine silk or experiencing something soft like a gentle massage that's a pleasant feeling to it so it feeds the mind <coughs> in that way it feeds the mind in terms of, of mental striving because if you, if you push too hard then um, <clears throat> you don't, you, your breath tightens up, it doesn't taste good anymore if you don't go to it strongly enough, it's too weak and insipid, it doesn't taste good anymore. So, with the breath acts as something that, that becomes a sign that if you, if, you're really, if, you, if you find the right way of attuning to it, it actually acquires a pleasant and fulfilling luster and, and savour to it. So it helps to regulate your mental effort, because if your mental effort is wrong, you don't get the right taste. And the quality of mental effort is the thing that, that we feed on in terms of our emotional state. So if your mental effort is too, is too fierce and too tough, then you just get your, your, your emotional state is agitated and, and bitter. So um, sometimes you, you know, one hears of people doing these very intensive retreats, very intensive kind of you know, intensive sittings, and then in the break they'll go out and they smoke cigarettes or something to just kind of get over the effect of the meditation <laughs> you know I have to sleep it off I have a few a scotch or something to steady your nerves after the amount of intensive effort you've been doing and this seems like slightly strange to me um, that you're not actually that the, the quality of mental effort is actually creating a bitter taste in the mind that you then have to, to find an antidote for or if the mental effort is too slack, it's rather like drinking kind of watered down tea or some, you know, cold watered down tea. You know, why bother? You know, you have dish water than this. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't brighten you. So if you have a, re a situation where it's you're too laid back and just whatever, then your mind goes into a kind of lukewarm soup state, and you don't feel satisfied. You can stay with it for a while, and eventually you look for something a bit more stimulating. You know, to, to do to give you a little more energy. So these two are the wrong tastes, and those are 
say, fairly, you know, exaggerating examples, most of us will tend to swing slightly around within that, and just recognizing when does your mind feel bitter, when is the taste of the practice bitter, and too, too astringent, and when is the taste of the practice too sort of insipid and sugary, and then when, when does it actually feel a nourishing, well-cooked, like a well-nourishing, well-cooked meal that satisfies, then you feel, you feel good. Um, and this quality of, of, of mental striving or mental application, mental effort, very much affects your, um, your physiology. So the breath has a physiological effect and the practice has a physiological effect. And where the two come together is where mindfulness of breathing is a great fruit. So when I'm talking about physiology, we're at the point where mind states, aspirations, <coughs> mood and emotions affect your energy at a, at a subtle level. Where particular physical sensations affect your energy at a subtle level. And mindfulness of breathing actually brings in both of these. That is that the regular steady flowing of breath actually affects your subtle body energies to, the, to a calming and refreshing um, subtle body energy, the chi or your prana or whatever you like to call it. Um, and this is very much, you know, mainstream practice is not some sort of esoteric thing. It, it's uh, the, the Buddha described the effects of this in many powerful similes that are quite um, most sensual in their descriptions, um, like you know, refreshing oneself in a cool bath after being in a hot desert. To English people, I'm sure you'd say refreshing yourself in a warm bath after being out in the rain. It's that kind of delightful, um, saturated experience that is, that is measured, that is actually received as a, as a subtle bodily feeling. One feels well. So the, the regular steady <coughs> breath actually has this effect on, on the body. It, it tends to clean out the tension and the cramps and the stresses and the imbalances that we pick up through bad posture, through rushing around, through taking lots of stimulants, you know, caffeine and rush and tense and adrenaline and push and that kind of thing. And, and mindfulness of breathing tends to clean out the residues of that from your, from your, your subtle body. And then of course, the, from the mind state, then the, the inspiration and the calming of the mind. And the mind actually, when it's trained with Vitaka Vinchara to become clear, to become pointed, to become sharp, and yet to be sensitive, the mind also feels well. It feels a sense of delight. It feels like it's lubricated. It feels that the rust has been taken off it. And so the mind feels happy and bright. And when these two come together, then the Buddha said, then one's mind, one is happy. And the happy, the happy person easily develops samadhi. It's natural. You don't have to push it. You aim for this quality of happiness, which is not 
a happiness of stimulation, a happiness of balance. And that balance will pull your mind into samadhi. There won't be anywhere to go. The hunger is, is no hunger. The mind will stay still because it doesn't want to go anywhere else. It's being fed, being satisfied. So then it naturally, happiness and samadhi uh, go hand in hand. And samadhi is the um, eighth factor of the Eightfold Path. Um, is an important um, thing to cultivate as the, as the firm foundation for the arising of wisdom and insight. Now if we look at this simply a little bit at a time, um, there may be various kinds of pre- preliminary practices. So was talking about taking refuge last night, some preliminary practice for the mind, preliminary practices for the body, like stretching exercises, um, developing posture, um, so that the body learns to feel settled and sits and feels uh, properly balanced. First of all, if there is a first of all, um, in the meditation, to just be coming back to the body with no particular aim to, to make it, to, to refine it or do anything other than just to, to start to touch in fully and completely to the body so that we are beginning to, to check out that arena of what, the body, what our body is about, what their bodily energy is like and just this kind of um, mode of practice and you from right there you begin to develop the qualities of Vitaka Vichara so it's not just thinking about the body but pointing your attention to specifically what is it that makes me aware of having a body you know, what is the dominant experience of body and warmth perhaps uh, particular kinds of pressures particular kinds of vibrations particular kind of sense of, of cohesiveness. There's a pattern there. There's a pattern of sensation there that we call, when you close your eyes, you call body. That's the cohesiveness of it. The pressures of it, the sense of weight or mass. This is the, the, the earth element, if you like. The sense of vibrancy, which can be the, the, the repeated rhythms of the breath or the, the subtler vibrations of energies or the pulsing of, of um, energies. This we call the air element or movement and the warmth, coolness, some warm, some cool, some cold, some shivering, some hot, some lukewarm. This we call the fire. So those are specifications. Mm. So when you come to your own body, you probably recognize a sort of a melange of those kinds of experiences. Mm. A melange of pressures, weights, warmth, vibrancy, or lack of it. Um, uh, You know, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Vitaka 
try to hold the impression of the body as elements. So in a way, Vitaka is, it's, a, it's an action of the mind and the mind. To, to register. Uh, register the body as, as in this elemental way. Then it's more conducive to meditation because you more rapidly and fully experience the amorphous and ephemeral nature of body. That is, body impression when it's held in this way is very much a dance, a changing flow changing kaleidoscope and it is it is powerfully affected by mind so you'll get very much quicker recognition of what your mind is doing vichara feel it out so that that that, that the mind actually becomes steeped in that body impression. The body impression is something like a, like a, a picture or you, that you actually draw yourself into, let your mind go into fully into that. Imagine your body impression to be like a, a pond that you, you immerse yourself in. And then within that you can feel the different currents and tugs and a steady recognition of, of the, the elements changing. So in this way we tuck a vichara around the body. We can do this sitting, we can do this standing, we can do this walking. When I mention being aware of what the mind does within these elements, then what I, what I mean in be more specific is you can witness the resistance to pressure, for example, or tensing up against the earth element. Mm-hmm. So you can feel that the earth, you can feel contractions within that particular experience. So as your mind goes into the body impression, then noticing where there's particular warmth that your mind is tensing against, or lolling around in, or cold that the mind is stiffening against, or or particular feelings and sensations that the mind is is agitated around. Mm -hmm. So you can see within that, that pattern of the elements, you see more clearly the effect of your of your of the mind on those on those elements. You can actually feel the, the body impression shaking or trembling or leaning and this is not to do with the anatomy but that may even affect the anatomy it's to do with the whole um, what we call it, aramana or mood or modality of embodiment and this is far more significant than the anatomy we often get into things about our knees and our back and whatever but if you approach the body from that particular angle alone what you tend to do is you tend to force the body 
from your idea of the way your back should be, from a thought. Or, you know, getting the right posture, so you can sit up straight and you go all kind of you know, tense and tight, or relax and you crumple. If you go to the, more to the impression of body, you can feel when, air, you know, this body impression goes dark or dull, or it's, it's kind of shooting off in one direction, or you've got kind of wild energies running up in one corner of it and it's completely numb in the other side of it. And it's really, if you work with those, then you'll find that your physical body will start to, to subtly unfold or bend or straighten in order to, to match and marry that embodiment impression. This is what I mean by that working, you know, seeing what your mind does with it and working on, on, the, on that meditative level of, of body impression. So we'll have, if you want to stretch your legs for a few minutes, um, we'll have a sitting, sit together for half an hour and just you know, work with our attention on the body. <laughs> 